Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. We talk about the petrodollar, the advantages it gives the U.S., and how it shapes U.S. foreign policy. Alex also tells us about war and its connections to the dollar and what the world would look like under a Bitcoin standard. Alex is the first repeat guest of this podcast. This isn't because he's interesting, though of course he is. The reason is that he's been publishing some really good articles lately, examining the role of the dollar in just about everything. Not much is known by the public about the petrodollar and the role it plays behind the scenes. Alex's insights, hopefully, will open your eyes to what's really going on. Alex Gladstein, how's everything going, man? Great, Jimmy. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, first return guest I've ever had. I've done, I think, like 42 episodes or something, and you are the first one that I've repeated. Glad to do that because you were like episode number two, and I didn't really know what I was doing, so hopefully this is better. Well, honored <laughs> to be back, and I've got some more ammunition for us to talk about. <laughs> What an appropriate word, ammunition, because we are going to talk about war and the petrodollar and everything else related to the petrodollar. So before we get into all of that, people know that you're, you, know, you work with the Human Rights Foundation and everything, but you also have a background studying you know, international relations and stuff. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that is my technical academic background is international relations, but I've learned much more on the job than at mm. school. You know, again, I did go to Tufts. I, I took classes at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I do have an IR background, but really the time I've spent from 2007 until now, you know, almost 15 years studying different regime types around the world and how they function and how they operate has given me kind of like a firsthand experience in kind of, let's say, geopolitics. I've learned a lot about, you know, the activities and behaviors of large governments, how they get what they want done, how they interact with their citizens, how they handle dissent, what is the most effective way of challenging them if they are repressive, what works and what doesn't, how they interact with each other. So these are all things that I've been observing over the years. And then, of course, in the last five years, I've tried to really take a look at, at things from an economic perspective and, and look more at how money relates to all of that. And that's, of course, something that Bitcoin encouraged me to do. Mm, indeed. And I mean, it seems like you had the theoretical background, then you had like sort of like the practical reality. What can you tell us about what you learned sort of, you know, working with activists from all over the world? You know, what can you tell us about sort of international relations or uh, geopolitics, basically, and how it actually happens? Yeah, well, it is a little depressing. I will say mm. that there's a lot of aspirational talk that you hear policymakers in the West talk about values like human rights. And some of them are well-meaning, you know, like I do really believe that some of these policymakers believe these things. It is true. But then you actually look at the results and you realize that time and time again, politicians, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, end up sacrificing, you know, altruism, they end up sacrificing human rights for business, or, mm. or, or you know, for trade, etc. 
So you really realize that like, you know, when you go back to the IR stuff, like the realists are accurate, like they are accurate. Like there are other schools of thought that try to like analyze the world in terms of liberal internationalism and in different camps that try to sort of explain away behavior of like the US government and foreign policy as if we are acting as some sort of benevolent force. And it's like a nice idea, but ultimately when you work with human rights activists around the world in different locations, like for so long, like I have, you realize that it's sort of, that's it. It's a nice idea. It's like pretty worthless. <laughs> when it comes down to it, you know, look at someone like Secretary Clinton. I mean, she was very happy to literally push human rights aside the moment she got on the plane to go to, to East Asia when she was first in power. And obviously the same thing could be said for her Republican counterparts. In Europe right now, you're watching the Germans, you know, basically, you know, completely avoid criticizing China for mm. putting Muslims in prison camps. So, I mean, no matter where you are, kind of the realism. And when I, I think people, when they say realism, what do they really mean? They really mean international trade. That's what they mean. Mm. They mean markets. And, you know, you learn that the incentives are not really aligned where, you know, if you want to do good and help people, that often isn't aligned in, in our world today with business. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about Bitcoin is, is it aligns incentives. Like, you know, your incentive to accumulate Bitcoin or to, you know, engage more heavily with it leads to a more powerful freedom tool for someone else. It's very different from the existing incentive structure where like, you know, things like exploitation, colonialism, imperialism, you know, neo-colonialism, neo-imperialism, subjugation, occupation, all these things are, are because of an incentive structure that like basically minimizes the other and you can afford to ignore them. What's interesting about Bitcoin is that you can't really ignore them. Like you can ignore them out of sight, out of mind. You don't have to care about these other people, but everything you're doing with Bitcoin is helping them regardless of whether you care or not. And that to me is fascinating. Mm. So, I mean, you seem to have gotten sort of like a lesson in real politique, right? Like there are all these ideals, the pretty words and things like that. But then when you get down to it, it really is a lot of international relations, as you were saying, are driven by economic considerations. Like that is the main driver of so much. Like how does that affect you know, like sort of like the day-to-day -day lives of all of these people, like the economic drivers seem to be sort of reigning supreme here. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I want to be clear. I'm not, I don't want to conflate governments here. Like I do study authoritarianism, like mm. clearly in the context of a country and a society, I promote and advocate for an open society that has restrictions on the rulers and what they can do. And, you know, the best kind of form that we can come up with, you know, the least bad of all the forms that we've found is sort of liberal democracy, where, you know, mm. we essentially have some sort of control over our rulers and we have constitutional protections and we have free speech and we have an independent judiciary. And, you know, these societies are worth fighting for. I mean, and a lot of the people that you meet who escape from dictatorships, you know, they will risk a lot to live in a society that where they can be more free. So everything is shades of gray. There's no black and white here. But yeah, you do have this interesting kind of almost a dilemma where, you know, a large percentage of the world is living under kind of like this kind of U.S. style of government. And they are t they tend to be friendly with the U.S. or even economic client states of the U.S. 
And then the rest of the world tends to be less free, tends to be more authoritarian, and tends to be sort of more standoffish, right? So this is just sort of, you know, the big picture reality here. So I, I do, you know, want to point out that you can, at the beginning of this conversation, I want to make it clear that you can be very critical of what U.S. foreign policy has done and, and kind of what our alliances have done over the decades. And we will do that in this conversation. But it's very important to recognize that I think like you still want an open society, like just because we're going to start criticizing how the U.S. has conducted economic policy and how it's changed the lives of so many people for better and then for worse. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for a society that's more open. You know, in a vacuum, no one wants to live under a tyrant. It would be my my general take from what I've learned. Like the people that I talk to, yes. Like when I interviewed someone from the Congo the other day, I mean, it was incredible to hear his whole story. But the last hundred years, to your point, like has been completely dominated by economic considerations. Like the colonialists came in, mm. they, you know, exploited Congo for rubber. They killed millions of people around the turn of the century, King Leopold's war. Then the rest of the world was like, Uh, that's like a little too intense. You should just do normal colonialism. So then they just did normal (laughs) colonialism from like 1908 to 1960. Then they got their independence. The the democratically elected leader of the Congo, you know, was not super on the U.S. side. So like corporate interests essentially, you know, had him killed. And then like a dictator was installed who was economically kind of cooperative with the U.S. and other Western interests. Mobutu, and he was there till 97. He renamed the country Zaire. And, you know, internally, he did well. He had a palace and all kinds of things. But the people went through all kinds of hyperinflation and stuff. And since then, since he fell, it's been a series of wars and conflicts in a fight over rare minerals and natural resources. So when you hear that story, this person is obviously very cynical. That's their history. That's their lived history. Mm. But they still want democracy. They're like, I realize the US and Europe have been extremely cynical. I realize they've colonized us. But he tells me, and this is someone who's born in Goma, in Eastern Congo. He's like, it's not a Western value to not want a strong man. Like, you know, I want to be clear about this. He's like, just because like democracies have taken advantage of us doesn't mean we don't want one. Like, we want to have a more open society. So I just thought that was like an interesting way to, to color the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, indeed. There are, you know, authoritarians that are clearly worse. But I mean, as you pointed out with Secretary Clinton and so on, and, you know, uh, the Western powers that like influence these things, economic considerations tend to be really big. And in a way, a lot of these countries end up getting into hyperinflation for one reason or another. Can you describe that process a little bit more? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll go into an you know, example. Uh, I just did an interview for an essay series I'm working on with someone from Sudan. And, you know, as he described it, you know, Sudan was once under the gold standard, kind of like before the 1950s. And obviously, we're not going to pretend everything was perfect. But you know, Khartoum, the capital, was actually known as the London of North Africa. There was a lot of commerce. There was a middle class. This was before the, I would say, uh, import of radical Islam into Sudan. Like Islam mm. came to Sudan, according to my friend from traders and Sufis. Like it was not a radically violent interpretation of this religion. It was like people were pretty peaceful. And then in, in the 1960, like the Sudan Central Bank was created and they obviously started fiat, you know, the fiat tradition. And then that began like just this like uh, cycle of devaluations of the currency over time. 
And then in 1989, as he described to me, when Omar al-Bashir took power in a military coup, and this is when they brought in this like really radical Islamic regime, they changed the currency from the pound to the dinar in 1992, a couple of years later. So, you know, of course, you had like a limited amount of time to bring in your, to bring in all the money that you saved, of course, right? And then exchange it for the dinar. And, you know, a lot of people didn't want to do that. So they ended up making examples out of some people and, and executing them for owning their own money. And then they for, they basically forced the system upon everybody where they could like extract seniorage at the expense of everybody else, have palaces and weapons and do what they want to do, all while kind of like raising the cost of living for everyone else. So when you talk about like, why is there hyperinflation in authoritarian regimes or high inflation? It's often because the people don't have a voice. They aren't being, you know, they aren't investors in the society. They're like, essentially, you know, I wouldn't maybe not slaves, but they're, they're certainly like chattel in the mind of the dictator who runs the country. And the dictator is, is very easily abusing their power of printing money because it's easy for them just to change the rules. Like there's all kinds of different rules that these dictators use. Some adopt a policy of just changing the exchange rate every few years. Some do what the Sudanese did and they come up with new currencies every few years with different reasons. Ironically, in 2007, the Sudanese went back to the colonialist pound after, you know, the dinar was kind of like its reputation was ruined. So they'll keep changing the currency around to suit them. Some have a crawling peg. I thought this was interesting. I was talking to someone from Nicaragua the other day. So Nicaragua has mm. a has a crawling peg. So essentially, mm. it's like pegged to the dollar, but it devalues a certain percentage every few years. Like that's predictable. <laughs> so essentially, you can see the seniorage happen like over time. Mm. So there's a lot of different ways that authoritarian rulers abuse the power of the mint, but ultimately it has led to a lot of suffering around the world. Yeah. And I'm not here to say that like it hasn't also happened in democracies, but there's obviously just sort of less, less likelihood that it becomes really extreme. It's more like, I don't know how we say it, but it's more like managed or hidden. Let's put it that way. It's more obvious in authoritarian countries. It's more obvious as a rule. Okay. So, I mean, there is sort of like the, um, a more authoritarian government is more likely to be able to, or to get away with rampant money printing, which essentially ends up in hyperinflation. Right? Well, because they can do, right, right, because like there's no open capital markets. Like, you know, mm. in a country like Ethiopia, it's illegal to have dollars and it's everything's tightly controlled and no one has property rights and no one can push back against the government or hold a protest or, you know, like all these things that, you know, people can do in democracies are useful tools for protecting, you know, some level of financial freedom. And at the end of the day, people in dictatorships usually do not have access to open capital markets. They are forced to use the regime's currency. And in a lot of places, it's illegal to have, you know, to have, quote unquote, a better money. Whereas we are lucky, very lucky and privileged in places like the United States or the EU to have both like property rights, courts that we can go to, newspapers that we can leak things to, you know, to be born into, or, you know, at least at the moment, a reserve currency that other central banks save in. Like our mm. currency might be mismanaged and it certainly is, but it is still like literally the thing that other countries save in. Like other central banks save, I think between the dollar and the euro today, I think 80% of all foreign exchange reserves are held in those two currencies. So, you know, we can... And we should criticize those currencies, but we should just realize that like globally, they're kind of like the best that, that are out there. 
which is a good segue into dollars reserve status. So can you tell our audience exactly how we got to where we are today, where central banks are holding dollars, which currently aren't backed by anything, but like, how did we get here? What happened? Yeah. And I think that, thank you for making that transition. I think it's important to note that it's not inevitable that we would be sitting here today and the dollar would be 60% of all foreign exchange reserves. Like that was not predictable or that was not like destiny. Like political things had to happen to make that the case. And that's what I wanted to get into with my essay on Bitcoin magazine on the hidden cost of the petrodollar. But essentially, I mean, TLDR, I mean, as you and obviously your listeners probably know, after World War One, the US had like a much more favorable balance of payments position in relation to war-torn Europe. We became the world's largest creditor nation. And that put us in a position after World War Two to like have the higher hand, more leverage at the negotiating table at Bretton Woods, which is where we gathered with all the other allies in New Hampshire at a hotel in 1944, as the Second World War was kind of like coming to an end, and where we gathered to figure out what the new financial system was going to look like, that gave us a very advantageous position, because we just sort of had a lot more of the gold in the world, which was the reserve currency. And the other countries had other ideas, obviously, John Maynard Keynes from the UK had this idea of like the bank core, which was going to be this like, kind of like collectively managed unit of account, similar to what we have today, like, with regard to like the special drawing, right? This is where that idea came from. But at the end of the day, the US, you know, had more leverage and was able to like, get everybody to agree or rather maybe force everybody to agree to a system where the, the dollar would be the, the reserve currency pegged to gold at $35 an ounce. And this, this was the Bretton Woods system and it, it lasted until 1971. Mm. And what happened in 1971? Yeah, well, you know, again, th- this is, there are a lot of different perspectives, but the one that I would, that I think is most useful to keep in mind is that the system did work okay for a while, especially like through the administration of John F. Kennedy. But after he was assassinated, the U.S. went in like a, a sort of a different direction. And we, we started spending an enormous amount both on war and on social programs. So of course, this is like guns and butter, right, is the way people say mm-hmm. it. But essentially, you know, Vietnam was like, insanely expensive, as were the Great Society programs that LBJ pushed forward. So as we Mm -hmm. got towards the end of the 1960s, other countries that were part of the Bretton Woods standard started to be really skeptical of the United States' ability to redeem gold for dollars, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think in in 67, the Brits basically failed to keep their end of the bargain, and they had to devalue the pound as a result of like poor fiscal policy and and just like sort of the collapse of the the ongoing sort of collapse of the British Empire. At that point, the French, who had been critical of the Americans, for sure, you know, de Gaulle was especially critical of what he called, uh, I think, the exorbitant privilege of the dollar at the time. They were like really threatening to pull their gold out of the system. And, you know, Nixon did later on, Nixon did manage to jockey a little bit and buy time. Mm. Other countries were withdrawing their gold, which was, again, was held in in custody in the U.S. and and the U.K., essentially. But by 1971, by August of 1971, things came to a boiling point. And the U.S. just had run such a high deficit that the French actually sent a battleship to New York City to, to take their gold back. And the British asked the Americans to 
a move, I think, about $3 billion worth of gold from Fort Knox to New York in anticipation for withdrawal. And then a, f- a few days later is when Nixon like closed the gold window. And this mm. is when he essentially went on television in August of that year. And he told the American people that and this was known as the Nixon shock, but essentially he announced a package to try and like, you know, in his kind of framing to like save the economy. But part of the package was going to be kind of like a freeze on wages, like an import surcharge. But kind of most importantly, the U.S. would no longer redeem dollars for gold to other nations. So all of a sudden, all these dollars that like the whole world had held, right, as a result of the Bretton Woods system, were no longer backed by gold. They weren't backed by anything, really, other than the U.S. promised to pay. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's a little unclear, like the cause and effect thing with devaluations. But as a result of this, the dollar devalued about 10%, right? So all these countries lost a lot of value in the savings that they had. And there was like a big moment of uncertainty geopolitically over whether or not the dollar would remain this kind of like the lingua franca of money. Like it was not like clear. So Nixon and Kissinger, who at the time was like, very important, held like several key positions. Obviously, some people thought he was more more powerful even than, than Nixon himself. They figured out a plan to try and like keep the ship afloat. This was made even more urgent by the fact that in 73, so, so you started to have obviously an inflationary event in the United States. And anyone can look at this just at the inflation rates through the 1970s. But after the devaluation of the dollar, things got pretty hairy, especially after 73, in retaliation against, you know, which I think is important to point out, like grain policy in the U.S., where, you know, the U.S. really, you know, was trying to sort of force people to import grain. The Arab countries through OPEC, and they held at the time about 80% of the world's oil reserves. In a series of actions, they ended up sort of quadrupling the price of oil, first of all, from like, it was like a couple dollars a barrel before then. And then it got to like $12 a barrel by, by the end of 1973. And then they embargoed the United States. So the U.S. was like in a a very desperate situation. It had its war uh, to keep going and it had its social programs. And it was a period of great unrest in the United States. Obviously, the early 1970s, as people know, that there was, you know, I mean, Nixon was coming undone. There was a period of just massive unrest. So Kissinger's plan, and this sort of unfolded across 1974, was to actually go to the enemy and try to make a deal. So in a series of like very, this was part of this was not secret, like very public meetings. We started to like, kind of like develop, try to develop a relationship with the Saudis, right? And the Saudis had just come into really key power as like, kind of like the swing producer of oil in OPEC. So like, they had enough production at this point where like kind of whatever they say OPEC would do, right? So they were like the key player, just as a result of the, you know, happenstance of how much reserves they had that were explored and proven at the time. And Mm. they, you know, were invited to go to DC and Crown Prince Fahd signed a bunch of agreements in June of 74, which basically laid the groundwork for the petrodollar. Nixon went to Saudi a few weeks later, and then Treasury Simon, who was very much like sort of like a creature of the banking system, the the new Treasury Secretary (laughs) Simon, he ended up uh, going to Jeddah as well. And by the end of the year, the petrodollar system was sort of like in place. And, you know, there's two components to it. One is that like Saudi Arabia would agree to sell its oil only in dollars. And those proceeds that it received are called petrodollars. But the other really important part of this 
and this was the part that was actually kept secret in, for a while. I, I mean, people kind of knew it was happening, but the actual agreement was only declassified, I believe, in the 1990s, was that the Saudis would sort of get preferential rates on buying U.S. treasuries and other assets, and that we would be like really encouraging them, I think, to put it lightly, to take a lot of their petrodollar proceeds and invest them back into U.S. debt. Okay, so this, this phenomenon is called petrodollar recycling. And by 1975... I mean, the Saudis started buying billions of treasuries in early 1975. And by later that year, all of OPEC was like on board with this idea of if you want to buy oil from us and we have 80% of the world's oil, you got to price it in dollars. Um, and, and the effects of this were huge. Not, you know, look, the energy markets are just one component of the, the world economy. But what ends up happening is that like all these countries have to all of a sudden like you know, get dollars to buy oil, like all these countries, like who don't, that like most countries aren't oil exporters. So, you know, they're sitting there and they either have to build an export economy, export led economy to sell stuff to the US to earn dollars, or they have to go into the like exchange markets and buy them. And either way, what ends up happening is they gain, start, start to gain sort of a dependence on the dollar, right? Because all of a sudden mm -hmm. the dollar versus your local currency becomes the dominant trading pair. And essentially this kind of like political action, not economic action, as Alan Greenspan, who was working for the Ford administration at the time said, the Saudis were not market decision makers. So it's really, really important to understand that the, the, the creation of the petrodollar was not economic. It was not free market. It was political decision. But the effects of it later kind of were economically very powerful. It basically created the momentum for the dollar to be dominant. And, you know, look, in the context of the Cold War, this was a genius move. I mean, it really was because what you had now is a scenario where the Americans, we could print money to buy oil. Now, we produced a lot of oil ourselves, but like we could print money to buy additional oil, whereas the Soviets had to dig it out of the ground. And that really put us at a huge advantage, in addition to the fact that all of a sudden, especially after like several years by the early 80s, like, the dollar had become so dominant as a result of the second order effects of everybody starting to like just sort of price oil and other things in dollars beyond oil as a result of the petrodollar system. So this has played a, a pretty major role in the economic pressure that led to the downfall of the Soviet Union. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that you said there that I want to cover. But like in the 70s, you know, Nixon cuts the ties to gold in 71. And by 73 or so, the petrodollar system is more or less in place. The rest of the 70s ends up with, uh, you know, essentially stagflation. You know, are those things related, like, you know, getting off the gold standard, getting on the petrodollar standard, you know, oil prices kind of going crazy, having an energy crisis in the 70s. And of course, like the stagflation, inflation, the, you know, crazy sort of economic turmoil that happened in that time. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple major things that I identify in the article that are kind of a result of the petrodollar system. And, and we can get into them a little bit later. One being our relationship with dictators, in particular Saudi Arabia, one being American foreign policy and sort of war, one being our support for the oil industry, as opposed to the nuclear energy industry or other renewables. And of course, like the domestic effects that happen as a result of a system where you know, over time, we kind of start to export a lot of our manufacturing to other countries that have weaker currencies. But to answer your question sort of directly, I think that there's a lot of instability here. And again, the system takes time to click into place. 
like you're right in that like already, you know, even like clearly before 71, the US dollar and US debt was like reserve currency because people thought it was backed by gold. So it was like widespread in all these central banks. And then there was this moment of like, oh my God, it's not backed anymore. What do we do? Like, and there was this like, again, this geopolitical moment of uncertainty. So, you know, the US kind of saved itself and re-cemented it as the reserve currency through the petrodollar system. And you can actually see this, like the pound was still being used in like 20% of like oil transactions in 73 or four, I think. But by 76, it was down to 6%. Okay. So like over time, we kind of like clicked the system into place. Now, as far as like the actual like domestic inflation rate in the US and the second oil shock, I mean, I would say that like these were obviously very important. I mean, they impacted a lot of people, but the bigger picture was kind of happening behind the scenes in that like the US was like no longer like needing really to worry too much long-term about a balance of payments issue because other governments were now like, there was this kind of, artificial demand for U.S. debt. So like, let's put it this way. Congo does not have artificial demand for its debt. Like nobody wants the Congo's debt. And I understand that's a kind of a silly comparison because the U.S. is obviously like, you know, the most powerful economy at this time. But still, like there would be reasons to diversify your investments. Like the Saudis were not like investing in U.S. treasuries aggressively before this deal with America, right? Like, again, just to underline, so much political action happened to create this system. But at the end of the day, like even through all this inflation and through all these issues, like people started to stack American debt, right? And then of course, like you have, you know, long-term over the next deck, over the coming decades, this incredible unwinding of the interest rates, which, you know, had gotten you know, really high, you know, almost to 20%, right? But by 1980 or so. And then through this system, you know, partly you were able to unwind those all the way down to today where they're they're close to zero, right? And part of this was because even though the interest rates were lower for our debt over time, you know, people still needed them or people still wanted them. So it really allowed us to finance a lot of things that we would not have been able to do otherwise over time, as we unwound from the high interest rates that were like another part of our strategy in the 70s, as we were scrambling to figure out how to figure out how to get people to reinvest in our, in our economy, obviously, like the obvious tool for policymakers is to raise interest rates. But the petrodollar system really like, was much more deep than that, more brilliant than that, I think, to credit them, even though I disagree with the results in terms of the outcome on people. But for them, self-interestedly, this was really smart because over time it allowed them to get away from the necessity of having high rates to lure foreign investors. Like over time, we could just like cruise all the way down from 20% to whatever we're at today. Mm. Yeah. And that lowering of interest rates like is done by the federal funds rate like being lowered and more money essentially entering into the economy. What did we do with some of those dollars? Like you were saying, like, you know, it funded a lot of things in the US. What did they actually fund? Yeah, well, like, so over time, like our, you know, debt to GDP ratio has become pretty astronomical. We have spent an enormous amount of money on our military, 
I mean, the, you know, like on fighting the cold war, I mean, obviously it was a big part of that. We have bases and like what, like dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world. We have a massive military budget, but if you look at America's spending every year, I mean, you'll see that, you know, the military budget is, is obviously very significant, but our social programs are more right. And I think one thing that's interesting is that a lot of this easy money that was created as a result of the system where like we had this higher budget capability simply because we didn't necessarily have to pay people back. We could kind of keep turning over the debt and more and more people were entering the system and buying new debt over time. And it, it rotated from the Europeans to the Japanese to the Chinese over the following decades. But there were always people who wanted to buy our debt. So I would say that in some ways it, it enabled a very inefficient system to happen where today, like, you know, regardless of your opinion on what role the government should play in healthcare, like, I think we spend more money on healthcare per capita than any other country, right? So it's like, and we don't even have like what Canada has or whatever, or, or what these other countries have. So it's kind of ironic. So I would say it led to a lot of bloat in social programs that was very inefficient. And then of course, like just this massive military presence. And then another thing that would be very important to mention is the financialization of the economy, right? So one of the impacts of the petrodollar system that I haven't mentioned yet is that all these countries like the Saudis had all this newfound wealth and, you know, what they ended up doing with a lot of it was, you know, basically investing it into these like Euro dollar bank accounts in London and, and, and other places, which were basically like dollar denominated accounts that were outside the purview of the Fed. And this largely, I think, was created as a result of the Cold War but the petrodollar system really sparked this. And today there are like obviously way more Euro dollars than normal dollars. And this played a key role in that. And this is sort of like a financialization of the world economy where you have like leverage on top of leverage, right? So you've gotten a lot more leveraging up due to the effects of this system. And they weren't, it wasn't like when Nixon sent Kissinger over to, you know, down to sign the agreements to Crown Prince Fahd. I don't think they were thinking about this. This is like mm -hmm. something that happened as a result of it, right? But it's undeniable to see the increasing amount of financialization as a result of the results of this system. I mean, I think financial services, which is like, I think like finance, insurance, real estate or whatever, was like 10% of US GDP, I think at the time. Now it's 20%. So, I mean, it's, it's massively bloated this system. And a lot of our resources have been plowed into this. I mean, if you look at our markets, if you look at stocks and bonds. I mean, it's not just spending on social programs and war. A lot of it went there too. And that mm -hmm. has had a tremendous like second order of impacts. I mean, a lot of people have done very well who have exposure to the financial system and everyone else who didn't blue collar folks like over the, you know, eighties and nineties and two thousands, like they really got squeezed. Cause you know, if you look at any like Pew Research of like real wages have really stagnated since the 70s, whereas a lot of things have gotten a lot more expensive, especially education and healthcare, real estate. Basically, anything that we can't offshore has gotten really expensive, right? And, you know, that's created some really difficult times for a lot of millions of Americans, millions of Americans who've become very disaffected. So I would say that the, the resulting financialization, you know, of the economy, partly as a result of the system, is something that's also really important to underscore and has led to like, honestly, like a pretty shocking inequality. Like America has a pretty average, I think, as far as like advanced economies, pretty average wealth, 
but a very low median wealth. It's pretty high average wealth per capita because we have people like Warren Buffett and stuff or Bill Gates. And a lot of other countries just simply don't have people that rich, but it's very low comparatively on a median scale because so much of our wealth is concentrated in it's such a tiny percentage of people. And that that's, uh, you know, one of the results of this system. Hmm. Well, let's go back to what you were saying before about war. And this is one of the things that I thought was really well spoken to in your piece about like the role of the petrodollar in like the U.S. foreign military interventions. Can you speak to that a little bit or maybe like give an overview of how the petrodollar affected the Iraq war, for example? Yeah. You know, the color, of course, is that we, you know, had to defend the Saudis. That was part of the deal, right? So we started selling huge amounts of weapons right away to the Saudis. I think the sales to Saudi in terms of weapons went from like a couple hundred million in the early 70s, you know, like a normal market participant in the American arms trade to like 5 billion by 1976. So, so they were like clearly a recipient in a targeted way. This And this was all like, again, in these public things that we signed together to form the petrodollar pact. This was the agreement. They would denominate oil sales in dollars and, you know, recycle that profit back into U.S. debt. And in return, we would protect them and sell them weapons. And that led to us defending the Saudis through thick and thin, even as they exported Wahhabist sort of extremism around the world, sowed the seeds for terrorism in all kinds of places. Obviously, you know, culminating in 9-11, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi and bin Laden himself was, of course, Saudi. So, you know, despite all the sort of negative externalities supporting the Saudis, we had to do it the whole time. And that that involved, of course, protecting, you know, Saudi from any regional threats. And of course, the first Gulf War was like part of this, right? I mean, we went and in a way that was, I think, much more internationally accepted. But, you know, we went in there and, you know, protected the other Gulf nations from from Saddam, which, you know, I think most people would agree was a reasonable thing to do at the time, seemed to have very multilateral support. But as we got towards the end of that decade, it became clear that, you know, Saddam continued to want to disrupt the system, right? And I think what's really interesting is to note a couple facts, and then we can kind of reflect on them, right? So the facts are that, you know, the EU project was kind of being invented in the 1990s, right? Late 80s, 90s came to fruition. And then the, the euro was launched at the end of that decade. And at the time, I mean, we, you know, so we're sitting here, we've had the 70s, 80s, 90s, we've had three decades of the dollar hegemony, just coming off the defeat of the Soviet Union. And we didn't do like another Bretton Woods to like sit around with all the countries and figure out what the new system should be. We just pushed forward with the dollar, right? So mm -hmm. what's really interesting is that, and important to reflect on is that, you know, look, Europe has a larger population than the US. It's a really significant economic powerhouse, arguably should be sort of bipolar in the world today in terms of power, if you look at things like economic output and population and things like that, like Europe and the US, you know, this was the dichotomy of the world. And obviously, like the 20s, if you looked at the United, you know, the British Empire and the US, and we were kind of like maybe trending towards that again. And I think people were really either excited or concerned, depending on what side of the Atlantic they were on, about the euro threatening the dollar dominance, right? So one thing that happened right away was in October of 2000, Saddam, who was, of course, under the oil food for 
program at the time where like he couldn't just have total control over oil because of sanctions based on his invasion of Kuwait, but he could sell it sort of through the UN and then, you know, get like kind of food imports as a return. But what he could do and what he did do was decide, screw it, like I'm going to sell my oil in euros and I'm going to create the Petro Euro. So by 2002, he was selling millions of barrels of oil a day in euros, mainly to German and French partners. And this was, we're talking billions of dollars of revenue. So by the end of 2002, the Petro Euro was a thing. And again, at this time, this isn't like today where like no one really takes the Euro as seriously. The Euro was a, was just born and it was like a hugely major threat to dollar dominance. And when you have a threat to dollar dominance, you have a threat to this whole system where the U.S. can continue to run up deficits and not have to worry about people being scared about their investments in U.S. debt, right? At least that's how it worked for a long, long time. And that allowed us to finance a lot of things that we otherwise couldn't have financed. And really was like a main driver of, again, you know, as we're discussing here, a lot of our foreign policy. So Saddam launches the petrodollar. And then in March 2003, like the U.S., with the help of the U.K., invade Iraq, overthrow Saddam. And then by June 2003, the new Iraqi regime under American occupation was back to selling oil for dollars. So those are facts. Now, Jimmy, you and I can now do some analysis, right? Mm. Yes, we can. <laughs> like, I don't want to, like, I have my opinions and I'm going to share them. But like, mm -hmm. those are facts and people can interpret them however they want. In my opinion, the official reasons for the Iraq war did not hold up, to put it lightly. We know that the Bush administration was already planning to invade Iraq before 9-11. There were high-ranking officials who said that in meetings in early 2001, the you know idea of attacking Iraq was sort of already on the table. And on 9-11, that September 11th, 2001, Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, you know, that evening he was working on a memo to try... He, to tie Iraq to the events of 9-11. So there were already people in the administration who were seeking to attack Iraq before 9-11. And then, you know, of course, we immediately went after bin Laden in Afghanistan. But throughout 2002 and 2003, um, the Bush administration worked really hard to sell the idea of invading Iraq. And there were like three main arguments. One, of course, first and foremost was the WMDs. We tried to claim that he had you know, weapons of mass destruction. Number two was ties to Al-Qaeda. So we tried to say that he was, you know, partly responsible for 9-11. And number three was like that we were going to like bring democracy and human rights to the Middle East. And the administration kind of like shifted back and forth on those three topics, but those were clearly like the three publicly stated reasons for invading. We had to, he was too dangerous. He was supporting terrorists. He was a threat to the American people. This was urgent. We had to invade now. This was well sold, especially by Colin Powell, who later, I think, you know, regretted a lot of this, but he burned all of his dignity selling this plan at the UN and elsewhere. And he was very well respected. I mean, Colin Powell was like incredibly well respected at the time as a top general in the United States, African-American leader, like, oh man, he was like, his word was unpeachable. So for him to sit there and sell this war was really something else. And it resulted in both houses of Congress supporting the war. Senators Biden, Kerry, Clinton, Reid all supported it. The Republican Party was supporting it. The Democrats were supporting it. 
72% of the American people supported the war in the weeks up to the invasion. So it was sold really, really well, right? And in retrospect, we find out there were no WMDs, there were no connections to Al-Qaeda, and obviously it was not for human rights. Now, what was it for? Well, in a lot of retrospective analysis of the war, people might say, oh, well, maybe it was geopolitically to counter Iran. Okay, well, okay, that might make sense. Iran is a enemy of Saudi Arabia, but let's actually think about that. In the 80s, we supported Saddam to counter Iran. We actually spent a lot of money propping up Saddam in his fight against Iran to counter Iran. So why would we all of a sudden now go attack Saddam to counter Iran? It doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when you think about the fact that most of the Iraqi population is Shia. And indeed, as we have seen in a more democratic, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a democracy, but when they had like the opportunity to elect officials, those officials ended up being like a little closer to Iran. So I don't really think that that opinion makes a lot of sense. So then the other one, it was for oil. And if you actually at the time went and spoke to anybody like who didn't have a high degree of sophistication, let's say, they would just be like, oh, it's about the oil, obviously. And what's funny is like, they were probably more right than the analysts in Washington and New York. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, even though they mm-hmm. didn't like know a lot about geopolitics or or they weren't like reading the newspaper every day, like they probably were more on the money. Now, I don't buy that it was just for the oil. Like, first of all, at the time, the U.S. was importing. First of all, we, we, we produced a lot of oil and, and we were importing a lot of our oil from Canada and Mexico and Venezuela. So we weren't importing very much oil from the Middle East. It was like a, a small minority of the oil and certainly not from Iraq. OK, so. The idea that we went in like just for the oil itself doesn't really hold up. Also, when you a lot of the oil companies at the time were worried about the war because they knew it would damage supply, like at least temporarily. Mm. Right. So Mm. there'd be bombing of oil fields and there'd be like uh, uprooting of bureaucracies. You have to retrain people. And this did bear out like production did dip. So this idea that we went in to like secure the oil for ourselves, like that one also doesn't make a lot of sense. So what we're left with is what people call a war in search of a reason. It is staggering today, but it's true that no one knows why we invaded Iraq. There's no consensus. So in light of all of that, I think this idea as described that like it was at least partly to defend the dollar dominance against the petro euro in light of how important dollar primacy was to us at the time makes a lot of sense. Guess what? Mm -hmm. It worked. It fended off the petro euro. Only rogue regimes tried to disrupt the petro euro, you know, in the coming decade. And it bought maybe another 10 to 15 years for dollar primacy. I mean, eventually, eventually, the Chinese stopped buying US treasuries in around 2014. And the world has been like dishoarding US debt since then. And the petrodollar system is starting to unravel. But like, at that time, man, the euro was such a threat, and it made sense. And it worked. I didn't include Libya in the piece. I understand the evidence. I just couldn't find enough to really make the case myself strongly enough. I think you can make the case that both France and the United States wanted to get rid of Gaddafi for kind of like monetary reasons, but I couldn't find enough good data. I mean, the amazing thing about the Iraq thing is like, I was, you know, all the stuff I cited is from like really well-respected people. These aren't like fringe blogs. I was citing like Newsweek magazine, David Graeber's debt and stuff like that. This is not like, fringe stuff. So I felt like the quality of supporting evidence really tailed off. 
And I also think that just by 2011, I don't know how, I don't know if America was as powerful as it was. I mean, really 2001, two and three, the US still was in that hyperpower moment. I don't think we're going to go to war really again over the petrodollar. I don't, I don't think we're as strong as we were at that moment in time. And I also think it's kind of obvious that like the world's starting to de-dollarize. Like, you know, at this point, there's very little we can do to stop China and Russia from trading with each other. There's like increased use of the euro. And, you know, Biden is still saying, his administration is still saying that dollar primacy is really important, right? He's, you know, they're saying this in the context of Nord Stream, this deal that Russia and Europe are doing. And hey, you know, that's still important for us to want to force the world to price things in dollars and to buy our debt. But, you know, the game can't go on forever. But I guess in conclusion, my analysis is that like, it almost had to have played a key factor in our decision to evade Iraq, because like all the other reasons just don't make any sense. Mm. Well, I mean, just thinking back to what's happened over like the last five to 10 years, it does feel like the regimes that are sort of bucking the petrodollar trend, we've been much more hostile to than we were before. <laughs> definitely, this. definitely. Right? So like Russia and China in particular, you know, they they seem to become have become kind of scapegoats. And, you know, I, one of my friends was telling me that he was going to vote for Trump in 2016. Not a guy that you would think would vote for Trump, but he was saying Hey, like the one thing that I, I really don't want is war. And I really think that Hillary is going to get us into a war with Russia. So, I mean, w- was that like something that maybe was in the cards and maybe didn't happen or something like that? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, we did have this like mm-hmm. Russia reset. I mean, we didn't. I mean, Russia literally invaded Ukraine during the end mm-hmm. of Obama's term and we didn't really do a whole lot. Like, so mm-hmm. I, I don't think that. That's the thing. I I think by that point, we had kind of lost our ability to force things to work in our direction. And I think you saw similar things in the Trump administration. Like, I mean, we we didn't do a whole lot. Like, and I think that basically it is true that governments that tried to denominate the sale of their oil in different currencies, you know, became whether or not, you know, it was related, you know, the... I don't think Iraq was a coincidence, but, you know, you have this like longstanding issue of Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, Libya, and, you know, they all ranged from like, you know, high tensions to outright war with the United States, right? I do think some of that's somewhat coincidental. And obviously, I think all the governments that run these countries are terrible. And I, I, in my day job, work to help people who are victims of them. But it, it is true what you mentioned. It is clearly something that drives us in this real politique that the U.S. government's priorities to preserve dollar primacy and it will go after anyone who uh, tries to disrupt that. I just think our tool set has changed and we're not able to do what we were able to do in like 2002 to 2003 anymore, if that makes sense. Hmm. Is that because like we just have less influence or because? Yeah, well, let me look to like it could only last for so long. Like, like again, Mm. like China and Russia are just becoming like relatively more dominant in their regions and Europe continues to be really powerful. And, you know, I don't know exactly, you know, I mean, America, I mean, maybe it's an sort of people call it overstretch, right? 
our deficit just continues to rise. I think the financial crisis caused a huge amount of lack of faith in the U.S. Like, so a lot of people talk about this, but um, so let's say you have this dollar hegemony that was like really propped up by the defeat of the petro euro through Iraq and other things. Okay, but then in 2007, eight comes along and the other governments in the world see that the U.S. is like very happy to just sort of like print more money to solve the problems. Well, like, you know, maybe that starts getting them concerned that their long-term strategy of stockpiling U.S. debt as their safest asset is maybe not the right strategy, right? And then, you know, this kind of like boils over and continues to be in their mind. And then by 2014, like you have literally the Chinese government come out and say at the end of 2013, actually, that they're no longer going to be buying treasuries. And they've actually been dishoarding them since, right? Mm-hmm. And now investing in their own programs, like they're investing in the Belt and Road, you know, investing in the emerging markets. And they're trying to create their own version of recycling. You know, I think they saw what the US was able to do with petrodollar recycling. So they're trying, now they're the world's largest importer of oil. So again, like things are starting to change. Like we just don't have the power we used to have. They are now the world's largest importer of oil. And they're trying to force countries who sell oil to them to accept yuan in return. And then those countries who are now sitting there with yuan instead of dollars, they want them to spend that yuan back in China on surveillance equipment and like technology. Okay. Mm. So th- they're going to try and create their own little recycling system. I mean, who knows if it'll work, mm. but I think in general, you have this kind of like, I don't know if you want to call it like imperial overstretch, but this, this petrodollar system was not sustainable forever. I mean, it lasted for a really long time. It still lasts today. Like it still is the default today. Like again, 60% of the world's reserve currencies are still held in, in dollars. And, but that's dropping. I think it used to be 80%. So we kind of reached the, and a lot of macro economists will talk eloquently about this. People like Luke Roman or Lynn Alden, et cetera. But like we kind of reached our apex kind of like maybe about 10 years ago or maybe about, you know, maybe 2000, somewhere between 2010 and 2015. And, you know, now we're just kind of on this like decline in terms of our status and role in the world. Hmm. Makes sense. All right. So let's try to go look towards the future. How would a Bitcoin standard change the geopolitical landscape? Yeah. So again, the current reserve currency is held in place by a reliance or a dependence of the US on on oil, on dictators, on different kinds of warfare, and on like hollowing out our manufacturing base and and in increasing inequality. Like th- that's kind of what the petrodollar is built on. And in exchange, we got a global military might and a fabulously wealthy financial sector. That's what we got in exchange. And that obviously tells you a little bit about kind of like who is in pa- who's in power here. And I, I feel very like cynical saying that, but it just seems to be true. So the question is, what would it look like if we went to a kind of like neutral balance of payments settlement system? Now, a lot of like analysts will say that there's like, and there's some studies on this, but th- they kind of like look at like four different futures for where do we go from here? Like, could the US over time sustain dollar hegemony by other means? That's one idea. Will we go into sort of a bipolar world with where it's like the euro and the dollar, essentially, more like we were with the pound in the 20s? That's another idea. 
One is that it's going to be this kind of Bancor-inspired SDR system with the BIS ruling everybody. Eh, I mean, clearly an idea, but it just seems unlikely that sovereign states would give up so much power that way, especially countries like the US, China, EU. And then fourth would be like that we actually sort of just sort of retreat from each other and become kind of like these like more economically disconnected islands. So these are like dominant geopolitical theories of like what's next. And it's funny because I think they miss like what might be the most likely, which is the Bitcoin standard. And I think in the same way that, you know, governments viewed gold kind of as like the the most desirable reserve currency previous to, you know, essentially Bretton Woods, you know, 71 or arguably, you know, arguably 44, you know, maybe they will start to see Bitcoin as the most valuable reserve currency. And I think that's where it starts is you have this narrative shift in Bitcoin and performance shift in Bitcoin in the last couple of years to where you now have like Fortune 500 companies and sovereign wealth funds, not only like looking at Bitcoin, but some of them are actually buying it. I do think this relatively shortly translates into states too. So I think you have central banks putting some sort of of percentage of their balance sheet into Bitcoin. Mm. And I think, well, I, think that, I think that grows from there. So that, that's how I think this whole thing starts. And then the question is, you know, how does that change the US behavior, right? And how does that change the behavior of other nations, which is just sort of what I want to try to unpack? Yeah, yeah. What would happen like once if say we get on a bitcoin standard how does that change sort of like the interventionist that yeah i still think the you and this is like you know people are going to start with this new fud about bitcoin being anti-patriotic like i still think the us is really dynamic really powerful obviously in, in every way and will still be like a top two power for sure in a bitcoin standard i mean i don't think there's any question we have plenty of the infrastructure Plenty of the asset itself, at least in private hands, you know, plenty of the corporate infrastructure, plenty of the developers. I know none of these things really control Bitcoin, but like the point is, it's it's like clearly we have an advantage over like Mauritania or like Finland. Like like we have a huge amount of the cap intellectual kind of energy capital that goes into into the Bitcoin network here, and I think our government. Even as I think the dollar, and if you just look at a chart of Bitcoin versus the dollar, like you're watching like the collapse of the dollar, you know, we still have the tail effect of the petrodollar system where other countries are still kind of forced to do stuff in dollars. And we saw that last year, right? During the COVID crisis, like they needed those swap lines from the Fed. Like dollars are still so important, even though like the, it's sort of declining. So if we start to go in that direction in the next couple of years and you start to see central banks start to stack a little bit and you start to see some flight and you start to see a continued. I mean, what's you're happening is, is, is you're watching a continued lack of de- decline in demand for the treasury, right? I mean, today the U S government is the majority purchaser of new treasuries, right? As opposed to when it used to be foreign central banks. Right. And mm-hmm. what, I don't know, there's a phrase about like the cook eating his own food or whatever. <laughs> you don't really want to be like the main purchaser of your own debt. Right. Um, but that's kind of where we're going, right? And I think, you know, over time, our own policymakers are going to realize that. They're also going to realize that from a national security point of view, it's not smart to have all of our supply chains elsewhere, like in China and stuff. So you're, or I think you're already seeing the Biden administration realize that half of it, where they really want like more stuff to come back here. 
and we want to be like, you know, you know, producing and maybe even exporting some stuff. So I think like either way, you're going to see some like downward pressure on the dollar. And then I think it still gives America a, a really good chance at being a pretty dominant player in every aspect. It's not like the military just goes away. I think it shrinks. Again, I think our dependence on foreign supply chains shrink. I think we may actually start like producing stuff again under this kind of standard. These are just effects that seem pretty like in line with what, what happens to other countries when they balance out of a really big balance of payment, you know, correction. But in general, I think it just sort of reduces our in, our ability to like fund such a massive like military presence and reduces global risk for war probably is my general sense of it. I mean, because it'll reduce everybody's global appetite and risk for war, especially if the reserve asset is no longer restricted to just governments, right? Like it, realistically, governments hold such a high percentage of gold, right? That's available, that's extant. But today, citizens own the virtual, almost all Bitcoin. I mean, there might be a couple, <laughs> like we don't know how much governments have, but it's clearly a small amount compared to individuals and corporations, right? So you have a situation where like, there are many Bitcoiners today who have more Bitcoin than mid-sized nations will ever have, okay? So mm. it's like, and they're not, and some of these Bitcoiners aren't going to be selling, right? I mean, mm. they'll sell at some point just because they're the one going to go do stuff. But, you know, a lot of them are going to save huge amounts for a long time. And you're going to have a situation where like governments, I think, are just like less powerful in proportion to their people and actually have to like negotiate with their people more and kind of deal with them more as opposed to run over them. And that would mean seeking their advice on whether or not we're going to go bomb some country halfway around the world, right? Or like actually more <laughs> including them in that in that conversation because you're going to need their money to do it, right? Like it's not so easy to print all this money to do this stuff if no one wants to buy your debt, right? So mm. seems pretty clear to me that there's going to be just like less waste on extravagant military stuff and, you know, and also less waste on social programs. And I don't think social programs are going to go away. I just think they're going to be like probably reduced and just more efficient by necessity. Mm. Wow. So many things to think about. So much that you talked about this past hour. Let's just try to wrap it up here. What do you think will happen with the petrodollar system? How does it actually die? Yeah, I think one is the like gradually then suddenly. And then the other is that it kind of has this long tail. Right now we're seeing that it's fairly resilient. I mean, even though you're seeing the dollarization even though you're seeing the U.S. power and influence wane. Um, again, like when we saw that moment of crisis last year during the shutdown, I mean, like people flocked to the dollar, right? So it still has a power, right? I mean, because like what else is there, right? But once it becomes clear over the next few years that Bitcoin is kind of like an alternative, then I think we see some like, I think we see some flight over there from our own systems, right? And again, I still think, the dollar system is going to be re relatively powerful vis-a-vis -vis other fiat currencies, which I don't think, by the way, are like even under a Bitcoin standard really going to kind of go away. I still think government currencies will exist and they'll be in a free market just like in a way there, you know, you know maybe, maybe a little bit freer market. But like the point is like governments are still going to issue currency, at least in the next phase of Bitcoin adoption. I don't know about like a hundred years from now, but it'll just start to be increasingly tied to your Bitcoin holdings as opposed to any other scheme. So I think the results are 
if we start to like transition out of this, that again, this system of like, start domestically, this system of like exporting everything abroad and hollowing out our manufacturing class starts to have like a retrace. Like, I think we start to like bring stuff back and make stuff again. I think the downward pressure on our currency will certainly help with that. And, and that's not going to be good for like potentially like a lot of like super wealthy people and 1% asset, big time asset holders and stuff. But like, I think that'll be probably help more healthy sort of for the average person. Again, we kind of covered the effect it would have on like war and the surveillance state and prison camps and stuff. I just think these things become a little more like you have to think a little bit more as a government if you're going to do these things because they're so expensive and you have to figure out your priorities with your citizens. As far as our support for Saudi Arabia, I mean, there'd be very little reason to do what we're doing now. The only reason the House of Saud really still stands today is because is because of the system, this pact that we've made with them. And yeah, they've, they've threatened to leave it if we do certain things. Like they threaten to leave it if if we investigate them for, you know, any connection to, to 9-11 or, you know, if we investigate them for energy monopolies, things like that. Like, but at the end of the day, like we no longer had to rely on them and others pricing oil and dollars. And, you know, that just wasn't really the system anymore. Then, then we wouldn't have to support these dictators. I mean, it'd be great. I mean, we could actually like help international efforts to hold them accountable. Um, and then, you know, Finally, I think, you know, like, I think, you know, again, I think oil is, is going to be around for a while, but I think, I think you even mentioned this to me at once. I mean, obviously some element of oil is, is part of a, almost like a store of value thing. Like it has a premium on it because of how useful it is in, in different ways. And I, I think that probably deteriorates a bit. And I think oil just becomes cheaper in certain ways over time. And maybe there's less pressure against the nuclear industry. Like this is something I'm pretty passionate about is uh, it's amazing to watch over the seventies and eighties, the way that us foreign policy and also world bank policy and IMF policy really discouraged foreign leaders from becoming energy independent via nuclear, like, especially in places like Pakistan and Brazil, et cetera. If you look at the history of this, there's been some weird stuff that's happened. We're like, clearly if you're like a scientist or a technologist, you would realize that like, it would be pretty sweet if we could just run on nuclear. Like that would be great. Like, yes, there is the issue of extraction of uranium, but I think it pales in comparison to the oil extraction and how we have to prop up this system. So I think you would see potentially like a lot more nuclear investment. Like to this day, the World Bank like apparently won't support projects in the developing world uh, that want where they want to do nuclear stuff and become energy independent. So I think that would be a pretty big, change too. So I think those are the main changes. And one way or the other, the, the petrodollar system will continue to decline in the next decade. You know, I think the major question is just what's going to sort of take its place. And I guess my money's on the Bitcoin standard. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. All right. So been very educational. Where can people find you and your work? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Gladstein. I'll be doing a regular column for Bitcoin Magazine on these topics. My full-time energies are spent at the Human Rights Foundation, where we seek to promote and protect the rights of people in repressive countries around the world. That's at href.org. And we're going to start doing our live event series again this year, which I highly recommend you all check out, called the Oslo Freedom Forum. There will be certainly like a Bitcoin financial track to our programming there. 
where people can learn more about it. And yeah, I look forward to, you know, hopefully seeing a lot of you in Miami in a few weeks. All right. Well, thanks for joining. And yeah, hopefully you and I will be seeing each other. But yeah, you'll be hearing from Alex quite a bit in the coming months. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Unchained Capital is a new sponsor of the podcast. I recently joined Unchained as an advisor on the engineering side. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Alex Gladstein can be found at at Gladstein on Twitter and hrf.org. Until next time, Fiat Delinda Est.